Welcome to this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. And, you know, think about the skill sets that we have to bring to bear and the amount of responsibility that we have as a professional. And is that commensurate with the, with the uh, degree that we're offering? Well, hello, and thank you for joining us again today. I'm excited to welcome back Stephanie Vandermeulen from Creighton University. As you know, Steph is a partner in this podcast and is going to be interviewing our guest with me together today. Our guest is a distinguished professor and former director of the Division of PA Studies at Shenandoah University in Winchester, Virginia. We're talking about Mr. Tony Miller. He has over 42 years experience in PA education, and he has held a variety of educational leadership positions, including Associate Dean for the School of Allied Health and Founding Chair for the Department of PA Studies at the Medical College of Ohio, which is now known as University of Toledo. He's been a division head, a program director, a state president for the Ohio Association of PAs, and a national president for the Association of PA Programs, which is now known as PAEA. He is a scholar, a gentleman, and a very insightful leader who we are excited to bring on board today. His resume and his bio is so large, we're gonna post it on our website, but we are gonna get into some of the areas that he has led over the years. So please join us in welcoming Mr. Miller. Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining Steph and I today. Uh, we're so excited to talk about your career and about Shenandoah University and your perspectives on a lot of things in the profession. Let's start by asking you about your path to the PA profession. Well, uh, thanks for having me, uh, both of you. And I really appreciate it. Uh, it's an honor to be asked to uh, be along with you on this uh, journey and this uh, podcast. Well, I had just graduated from high school and was working, believe it or not, as a garbage man for my summer job. And at some point, uh, got my draft number and uh, out of the lottery, it looked like it was going to be fairly likely that I was going to end up in the rice paddies of Vietnam. And I thought I would like to have an alternative to that. So my dad had been in the Navy. And so we went down together to the Navy recruiter and talked about different options. And long story short, I ended up joining and initially actually became a radarman because I initially signed up to be a photographer's mate. And, and they said, uh, really, um, I don't know why the recruiter told you that you could be a photographer's mate. There's like two in the United States Navy. And you have to wait for one of those guys to die or retire. So I was a radarman. I was uh, attached to a destroyer, the USS Richard E. Byrd. And eventually worked in with the chiefs and shadowed a corpsman chief uh, on our ship and really got interested and petitioned to get transferred and go to core school. And, and believe it or not, I got accepted. Uh, we were in the Mediterranean at the time. I hopped off the ship, went back to the States and became and went to core school at Great Lakes, where I ultimately got stationed. Um, I did some time in med surge and also at one point got transferred to boot camp to do a daily sick call. And it's there where I met a guy, I think his name was Chuck Curry. And uh, Chuck was a PA and he was our medical officer. And we got chatting about things and I really was intrigued by the PA program. Uh, there was also some uh, students from the University of Nebraska that were also in the, in the military. 
that I had a chance to chat with. And it turns out that there was a PA program that I didn't know about at Cuyahoga Community College that was affiliated with the Cleveland Clinic. I applied to that program and got in. I was to my surprise. And, and then I was really nervous of whether they would let me get out early. So I got a two months early out in order to go to PA school and went to that program. And believe it or not, um, you know, not at typical that you would get in the first time you tried to a program, but I did. And that, um, that was my initial start in PA education, uh, or not in PA education, but in the PA profession. Right after that, I, it was sort of an interesting times. So I would just say that the, um, we as a class had to advertise for our jobs. I mean, we took out ads in the American Academy of Family Practice Journal, which, by the way, had a disclaimer at the end saying that just because we put our ads in the uh, classified, that didn't mean that they endorsed the PA profession. So it was sort of odd, but I ended up getting a job in a small town in Ohio for a guy named Elton Lehman. By the way, there's a book about him now because of his work with the Amish. And I worked with him and it was a great job, but uh, I got recruited to Cuyahoga Community College and uh, to become a fa- uh, sort of a faculty member. At that time, we were called preceptors uh, because we couldn't go on a faculty contract. And that was in 1978 that I got my first start in PA education. Uh, worked in multiple jobs, you know, he did clinical coordinator, academic coordinator, and then eventually became the program director. And at that time, I became a program director of two PA programs, well, a PA program and a surgical, a surgeon's assistant program, because we had both uh, at that time. So I did that for a few years, uh, eventually moved into administrative position, would be like a dean's position at that time, it was called division head of health careers and natural sciences. And for about five years and really enjoyed that job, I actually oversaw the PA program and the SA program. We got a new president and she decided to have this, uh, what we call competitive repositioning. Uh, All the administrators had to apply for new jobs and well, I wasn't selected. Shortly thereafter, ended up um, developing the first master's program in Ohio at the Medical College of Ohio, which now is the University of Toledo. And stayed there for um, a number of years Met this gentleman at um, an AAPA conference in Chicago uh, right after I gave this talk on, as you know, we were at that time, we were doing presentations on the degree issue. And he said, I, you know, I heard that you might make a good program director and I'm recruiting right now. And I said, well, I'm not really looking for a job. He goes, fine, uh, just uh, that's perfect. Come and have lunch with me. Turns out he was the president of the university at Shenandoah University. And I was sort of intrigued because most of the time, as both of you know, um, when people are recruiting for program directors, it's usually a dean or a biology head or something like that. But the president came all the way to Chicago to do recruiting. So I thought it'd be worthwhile to give him some time. And I met him for lunch and then the next day again for breakfast. And long story short, I came out there and interviewed. It was a beautiful spot and some things were happening in my life that made it uh, possible for me to move. And in October of 2000, I ended up at uh, Shenandoah University, and the, we launched the first program, or the first cohort in 2001. So, Tony, tell us a little bit about, you've been at Shenandoah for quite a number of years now, so tell us a little bit about Shenandoah, you know, kind of what sets Shenandoah apart, what makes it unique, and, you know, what, what would you say applicants need to know about Shenandoah University PA program? 
Sure. So um, I think the, the, the thing that intrigued me about Shenandoah was it was the first private school that I worked at. I had been at a public a community college and I was at a public uh, medical school, both of them in, in the, the state systems. So this was the first private, and I was intrigued by the fact that Shenandoah has a diversity of offerings. So we have a, a highly rated conservatory. We have an arts and sciences. And I was always intrigued by the intersection of the arts and medicine. In fact, I developed one of the first courses called Humanities for the PA Profession uh, when I was there. So that small field when I first came there was only 2,000 students. The uh, and that still remains. We're up to about 4,000 students right now, but it still has that small college feel. We're on first name basis with the president. Her name, well, Jim Davis, who recruited me and uh, left and uh, was replaced by uh, Dr. Tracy Fitzsimmons. I know her as Tracy. She knows me as Tony. It's all first name basis. We uh, have uh, interactions with the trustees on a first name basis as well and have visited with them and, and so forth. So it really is a family type of feeling at, at Shenandoah University. And that also means that we can do a lot of innovation and you know balance off the arts and medicine. So our students can go to a, a play or a performance free as long as it's uh, because they're students that get in for free and they have that opportunity. And it's a beautiful area. We're in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, only about an hour and a half to two hours away from D.C. So, we, you know, you can get the big city if you want to. Or you can go hiking if you want to. Um, and then uh, shortly after I moved there, maybe about five years after I moved there, you know, we got our first Olive Garden. So hey, we made it to the big time. We still don't have Trader Joe's or Whole Foods, but we're working towards that. How would you say that smaller school environment and that more family feel, that first name basis with the president, how would you say that that translates to the student experience at, at Shenandoah? Well, I think that the students know that we as faculty and all the way up to the administration are approachable for uh, what they would need if they have suggestions or you know special requests that, that we are accessible to them. And that even though our class size is a little bit approaching the higher side, our class size is 60, but we have 42 at our Winchester campus and 18 at our Loudoun campus. So it still gives them, and with the student faculty ratio that we have, it, they still get the sort of the one-on-one uh, -on -one interactions with the faculty. Every student has an advisor that they meet with on a regular basis. So we still have that, you know, individual kind of appeal, one-on-one -on -one appeal where the students have, and we do a lot of small group stuff too as well. So the students get a lot of attention. If somebody's um, having trouble, we know about it. If somebody's or struggles, we know about it. So I think that's sort of the, I think that's the appeal. We also, you know, have high tech as well. So um, we have what I call, we have high touch and high tech. All of our students, when they come in, are issued a uh, Apple MacBook and an iPad, and they use that throughout their uh, curriculum. That allowed us, for example, to move uh, in the COVID pandemic, you know, online or virtual education very easily. It was a very easy transition. Plus, um, because we were delivering edu educational content to our satellite campus, we were set up for that as well. So I would say that we're very nimble. We have high tech. And then we also have that one-on-one um, -on -one sort of family kind of uh, environment for students. And Tony, I know over the years as I've watched you, your brain is always engaging into something innovative, something new. 
So you talked about some of the innovative things that you were, the flexibility that you received because of the, the institutional support. Looking back, what are some of the things that you are most proud of that you developed at the school that are still in play today? Well, I think one of them is is that we've been uh, very successful in achieving uh, federal funding through grants, and that has allowed us the resources to do some of the things that we wanted to. So one of the things that we have right now is one day a week, our students are in a student faculty-run interprofessional clinic that we run at our local free clinic, which is called the Sinclair Health Clinic. That is grant-funded. That helps pay for the infrastructure costs with that. The grant has also allowed us to help students with the costs of of being deployed for clinical rotations at remote areas, which has helped with our primary care mission, our rural focus, um, so that we can support students when they have to uh, take clinical rotations and be away from their apartments and have to pay for housing. We've been able to use it to buy some equipment um, in the past that has helped us keep up uh, from a technology standpoint. Our humanities course, I think, is unique, which combines cultural awareness or cultural competence and cultural sensitivity, if you will. We also do our ethics within that course, and then also something we call experiencing medicine through the arts. So when we look at, for example, the issues of death and dying and reactions to illness, we use um, some movies as uh, a way to stimulate uh, student thought and, and an emotional connection to that uh, through um, sort of a vicarious experience through the movie, and that allows them to talk about things that they may have a trouble talking about if you're just talking about it from a theoretical standpoint. One of the things that I remember from our engagement early in my career as an academic were the faculty development workshops that you did with all your colleagues. I think the first time I came across your training was Phoenix. So one of the things you're famous or infamous for is your contributions to PA education in terms of faculty development. So if you could talk a little bit about your passion for leadership and maybe why you landed in that realm of faculty and curricular development. Yeah, um, I'm not sure why I landed there. Um, I've always felt that we needed to help our own to get the skills and knowledge that we have. And, And it was always sort of like bootstrapping folks along the way. And I was very, and I think that came out of my experience of serving on the board of um, uh, the Association of PA Programs, now PAEA. Uh, Back in, I was the president in about the mid-1980s. In the late 80s or early 90s, um, we were able to, we had had been working with the federal government. We were able to secure a contract for um, leadership training, and that was allowed us to bring aspiring program directors, associate directors, and so forth for a full week experience at uh, St. Francis University in Loretto. And uh, we were able to do that, you know, basically for free for a couple of cohorts. Eventually, then we ended up had to ask people to pay for it. But I worked with Bert Simon and some others uh, to offer those workshops. And, and I think they were amazing. I mean, uh, one of the individuals who was flying back on uh, the flight after we had finished the workshop was one of our students. And, and she leaned over to me and, and said, you know, this seems like a lot of fun for you. And it seems like I really want to get involved in becoming a leader in the profession. And that person was Anita Glicken, who who eventually became the director of the Colorado program, has done a lot of things for our profession, became president and so forth. So, and I just recently saw um, an article that was written uh, when Don uh, Morton Rios has uh, recently was appointed uh, to the CEO 
of NCCPA, and she credited the LTI or Leadership Training Institute as uh, one of the pivotal areas of her um, development uh, as a leader. So um, I'm really proud. And when you see those kind of success stories, it just wants you to do more and more and more. The leadership thing then turned into, we looked at uh, basic skills, and I think there was a grant that actually initially funded the basic skills workshops, and that continued to grow. People were eager for that kind of faculty development. I will say that over the years, people have said, well, we should you know, make this more accessible, m- making it online and so forth. And, and we've always pushed back on that because while we provide some good content, I think the biggest thing that folks get out of those is the, the relationships that they develop with their cohort over, the, over that time. And I see Stephanie nodding. So it, it just that's probably one of the biggest factors is that the development of long-term professional relationships. You can call somebody on the phone and say, hey, I'm having trouble with the, this particular standard or this particular uh, for the ARC, or I'm having trouble with, uh, you know, retooling my tests. Can you give me help? And now we have that support system. That, that's quite a legacy. When you think about the cohorts that go through, you often see them ultimately teaching those workshops together. Yeah. So you, you continue that legacy just from the investment that you made. That's, mm-hmm. that's great. Thanks. I think that's something that's very unique to PA education and PA educators is that that collaborative spirit and that uh, there's a saying that I always like, and that is uh, the, the rising tide floats all boats. And I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's, I think that's something that, um, that PA educators do well. It's, we share knowledge, we share best practices and, and it's something that I think all programs and all educators benefit from. So Tony, the PA curriculum is is densely packed. It it always has been, and with the growing body of medical knowledge and the advancement of medical t- technologies, it, it gets more and more challenging to condense the um, the appropriate amount of of information into a curriculum into a shortened period of time. So, what do you see are some of the toughest challenges that your PA students face throughout the process of their education, and and what advice do you give? those students to help them navigate PA education? You know, I think there's a lot of challenges, and I think that the challenges are often unique to each individual, uh, depending on whether they're a traditional student or a non-traditional student, uh, whether they have family or they don't have family, and, and, and so many different factors. So I would say the first thing would be is getting to know the student and really having some type of advising, mentoring uh, relationship with them to really feel out what their unique situation is and to help them individually. But if you wanted to look at it sort of on a group, make some generalizations, I would say one of the things that are happening right now is the cost of education continues to rise. And I think in the last AAPA salary report, we saw that there really wasn't much of an increase in salary. So will uh, that rising tuition continue? Uh, Will this, I guess, will this, the graduates be able to amortize their debt um, effectively with the salaries that they're getting in the future and, and the opportunities. And I think um, that's another thing we need to watch as a profession are the, are the opportunities for our graduates continuing to be there. I think last year and the last couple of years, things maybe have slowed down. Um, it might be possible to say that that was related to COVID, but it, time will tell whether or not uh, the job market for PAs will continue to grow. But Stephanie, you're, you're absolutely right. I think the expectations for our graduates continues to grow. When you and I and you know, Kevin got out, I think there was some 
patience on the part of our initial job supervisors, whether that was our supervising physician or, or, or team, to allow us some time to sort of grow into that job and, and so forth. I feel like my, my, um, the doc that I worked for in my first job was very patient. I don't see that as much. I think that our, our graduates are expected to hit the ground running. And when I worked at the medical school, uh, I, I could tell you in the halls, I'd always hear, well, don't worry about that. They'll get that in residency. Oh, don't worry about that. They'll get that in residency. Well, we don't have residency per se. I mean, you know, it's optional. So we don't have a required residency. So our students have to hit the ground running. And um, not only are they expected to do patient care and provide high quality patient care, but they need to know a lot about the healthcare system, how, to, how people get reimbursed, what about insurance, um, how to code things, uh, quality assurance, all kinds of you know, patient safety. There's a lot of things that, um, that we have to continue to squeeze in our curriculum, and, and that continues to be a, cha- a challenge. So you asked about advice. I'd say general advice. Continue to balance your work and school and your life. Always make sure, I always tell my students, I said, you got to give yourself some time off during the week. Um, take, take an, even if it's just an afternoon, but this is not a study time. This is for, this is me time. But we also have to recognize that we are a helping profession and that our focus always needs to be on what we need to do to eventually provide high quality, compassionate care for patients. And so there needs to be some self-sacrifice to get to the point where we are competent providers and also continue to be providers and that we're, that we're always taking the patient's interest above our own. Tony, you brought up a really good point about the expectations for starting. I wonder, you know, when I started as a PA in 1996, my first salary was $55,000. And at that time- Mine was 12. 12. <laughs> and I think at that time, the new internists that we hired probably made 140 or 150. And now I would, you know, our, our grads, at least in LA, coming into primary care are starting between 110 and 125. And the uh, internists are probably starting between 225 to 275, I would imagine. So I, I don't know if that's a, a matter of the you know, salary expectations, and, you know, when you make a six-figure salary, you generally are expected to be productive. Or is it related to the increasing MBA leadership of health systems that are, you know, all these practices are being bought up and docs are, are, are less and less uh, responsible for the employment of a PA and, and more and more are just involved in collaboration or supervision. Do you think that, which one do you think it is or is it both? Well, I think it'd be both. I think that there will always be uh, um, an examination of the ratio between uh, PA and physician salaries and whether that stabilizes or, or continues to narrow in gap. If it continues to narrow in gap, then people will continue to ask the question is, you know, do I, why should I hire a physician assistant um, or a physician associate? When just for a couple more thousand dollars, I can get a sort of quote unquote real real doc, if you will. So I think that that ratio needs to be continued to be monitored. And and um, and again, it's a struggle because as tuition goes up, the expectation for salary is going to continue to grow. As our um, quote unquote autonomy goes up, you know, as we as the academy continues to push for OTP. Um, as uh, we continue to look for better recognition as a professional, 
then um, our the expectations for us goes up, and then of course our salaries should go up com- commensurately. So it's that kind of struggle. But I think you're right about the EMBA kind of approach. Um, I, I served uh, until recently on the board of directors for uh, Valley Physician Enterprise, which is the um, the organization that sort of manages all of the um, uh, not all of but some of the groups in um, in my area the, that came under this umbrella. And, you know, we sit around our board meetings and talk about there's all kinds of metrics. There's this uh, patient satisfaction metric. What is the metric of dealing with how many patients people see and, and how fast do they get appointments and how long do they have to wait for an appointment and how long they wait in the waiting room. So up in the boardroom, it's all about metrics. Yeah, um, and yeah. probably the last thing to talk about is, you know, how many people are, you know, the mortality and mort- morbidity. But I mean, that's part of the discussion, let me say, but most of the discussion is about the metrics and like I just mentioned. The bottom line. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. And money. How much are we losing? How much are we making? Sure. Sure. W- one of the things that I, I was hoping we could chat about was your perspective on the doctoral degree. I, I think you've been a vocal proponent for the doctoral degree. Um, and I'd love for you to share your reasons why and, and sure. maybe update us on that because I know it's an evolving thought process. Yeah. Um, and I want to start off by saying that I was not always favorable of us moving to a doctoral degree. And uh, I still have some scars for when I served as the chair of the, uh, the degree task force regarding that took us to the master's degree. We voted on that as an organization in October of 2000. And when that passed with a lot of dissent and, and, and so forth uh, in discussion at our uh, business meeting, people put on black armbands for the rest of the meeting. Uh, it was a pretty dicey time. And, and, and honestly, I went in there thinking that we were going to endorse a baccalaureate degree at that time because we had certificate baccalaureate master's degrees and, and associate degrees at that time. And um, when we sat down and examined it, we came to the conclusion that we really should be moving towards a master's degree. And we didn't, there was no teeth in it, of course, uh, you know, at that time until the uh, ARC decided to make that a requirement, uh, actually just fairly recently. So the doctoral degree, as you know, there are lots of programs that have started an add-on doctoral degree. And for the most part, they're pretty successful in recruiting people. So there's a demand. And at least when I've talked with directors, in some cases, there's waiting lists. They're not having much trouble filling that. A couple of years ago, um, the Virginia Academy of PAs asked me to give a talk, and it was because somebody else canceled and they needed a last-minute person. And I don't talk much about clinical subjects, so I said, I'll talk about the doctoral degree because uh, uh, Betty Copeland and I had just written an article about that, you know, the, the doctoral degree, a ticket to autonomy. And as I was giving the presentation, which I thought was fair and balanced, I was saying, here's here's the tuition, here's the you know, here are the sort of benefits and here's the downside. Um, PA um, in the back of the room stood up and asked me a question. He said, you know, so basically you're saying that the average PA program um, has about 107 credits. And I said that that's true. And the average uh, cost of PA program is somewhere in, you know, eighty five, $95,000 range. Yeah, that's true. And um, it takes about 27 months or so. Yeah. All that's true. He goes, so if I was to get an MBA or an MPH, I would, you know, if I was doing an MBA, I'd take 45 credits. If I was doing an MPH, 
it'd be about 60 credits and it'd probably be about half the cost. So you're saying that you guys are going to do us a favor by offering a doctoral degree after we graduate, have us come back and do 30 some more credits or whatever and charge us another $30,000 while we're trying to work and then have a family. And you think that you're going to pat yourself on the back about this. And that was a eureka moment for me. I'm like, sure, this guy's got a great point. Like, we're already there in credit hours. We're already there in cost. Why do we need to, you know, do this? And, and I thought there's an aspect of doing an add-on doctoral degree that, that you know, that sort of struggles that I struggle with from a moral standpoint, a moral and ethical standpoint. Are we really, I mean, we're helping people. And, you know, it's not going to make anybody a better clinician necessarily. Um, I mean, there are some programs like I think Butler's that focuses on, um, on uh, more clinical things, but most of them are public policy, you know, leadership and so forth, or education. And so I think that we have an obligation to look at that issue and see if we could do it more cost effectively and quickly for our graduates to give them a leg up, not from a clinical standpoint, by, by any stretch of the imagination, but by other things, other opportunities that they could create. And I'm really an advocate of an optional doctoral program, programs that want to do it or, you know, create that track within their curriculum. And I'm talking entry level doctorate, let them be able to do that and offer that um, for the people that want it. Some people will not. And I would just add one other thing. Part of my motivation is, that you know, you guys know Carl Fasser, and he's been a sort of a beacon for me and my growth as a PA uh, educator. And he was the first person that I know that actually began to look at that and, and actually had proposed it internally before he retired at uh, Baylor. And one of the things he said is, you know, really, it's not the clinical stuff that's really expanded as much, although I think there was three antihypertensive drugs that I studied in PA school, and now there's like 300. But it's that quality assurance, the healthcare systems, all the other non-clinical stuff that's really continued to grow and has pushed the boundaries on our curriculum. You know, this whole argument about keeping up with the Joneses, maybe we shouldn't, but, you know, pharmacies at the doctoral level, PTs at the doctoral level, uh, occupational therapy is at an optional doctor level. They almost went to a mandatory doctorate, but now they, they backed off on it. Athletic training is now master's required. Um, and, you know, think about the skill sets that we have to bring to bear and the amount of responsibility that we have as a professional. And is that commensurate with the, with the uh, degree that we're offering? Yeah, I don't know where Steph is on this, but... You planted a seed a couple of years ago, and, and I was actually uh, very much against the concept because I was concerned about the impact on diversity. And, and since that time, I've been watching with curiosity uh, on a wide variety of areas, Twitter and other social media avenues. And the truth is, students of color around the country take great pride in being accepted into a doctoral program in a wide variety of areas. It is palpable to see the excitement for a family when one of the kids gets accepted or one of the young adults gets accepted into a PhD program, EDD, MD, et cetera. And so I, I'm not sure we're effectively capturing that concept of diversity yet, because certainly those doctoral programs have a significant expense to them as well, but you know they have a, a great 
Well, not all of them have a great outcome financially afterwards, but most do. So I, I, I'm, uh, I'm open to it. And honestly, as a, as a leader, I'm also considering starting a post-doctorate program because I think the writing's on the wall, and I think we're going to need to go there. And, and I'd like to be able to set something up so we can shift to it fairly quickly. I was going to say, um, it, it probably isn't a secret that uh, Shenandoah University has, has looked at different options to increase our diversity. And one of the things that we started to look at is, could we start a, 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 a part-time option, or a weekend, not a weekend college, but you know, part-time option, and, and in a way to, to attract individuals who have economic or family situations that prevent them from doing the traditional type of program. Um, we sort of took a, you know, 180 and went to decide to go where we're going to do with an optional doctorate program. We recognized that we would be bringing in additional revenue to the university. And as part of that package, uh, which, by the way, is on hold right now because of the accreditation issues, to talk to our administration of taking some of that revenue and putting that into full rides for disadvantaged students. So I think that you can do both if, if you have the will. If you have the will. You can take away obstacles. At the same time, we're taking away the GRE as a requirement at our school. It, it, it's no longer a requirement as of this admission cycle. We looked at that as an obstacle for diversity. So if you have the will, you can examine what are the barriers and then try to overcome those barriers. Steph, how about you? Where are you at on the doctoral issue? Yeah, you know, I think it. I think we're we're in a bit of a unique situation when you when you compare ourselves to physical therapy, occupational therapy, you know, some of the other professions that have moved to a doctoral degree because they don't they don't also have another entity that is doing the same thing that you know that we are. So you know, there there is already a path to a doctoral degree in the practice of medicine, and it's you know MDDO. And so if, if we're arguing that a doctoral degree in PA education doesn't change our scope of practice, it doesn't, you know, change our, our patient care, unless you consider the programs that Tony was speaking of. If you argue that, then <laughs> I just have a little bit of a difficult time. It, it, it creates a cloudy picture. It, it creates a cloudy picture in the clinical setting where we say PA education trains individuals to practice medicine medical education trains individuals to practice medicine. They're not in the same education, but they both ultimately end in a doctoral degree. I'm not opposed to it, but I, I just, I think it creates a, it creates a, an odd dichotomy that I don't know how we reconcile that with, you know, for patients. I don't know how we reconcile it for, you know, our physician colleagues. I don't know how we reconcile it for payers, you know, insurance companies, health systems, I, I think it has the potential to create a lot of problems. And I and sometimes I wonder if that outweighs the perceived benefits of it. So again, I'm, you know, I, I certainly have explored the arguments, pros, cons, you know, the different types of doctoral degrees, and, and you know, whether that's a terminal degree or an, an additive degree, I proudly sit firmly on the fence on the situation at the moment. I, I have to say, I, I just, but I, but what I do believe is that we can't not explore it. We can't not come together as a profession in a unified manner and, and pursue this because I think if it, if it happens organically and it pops up in one way here and in one way there, and it pops up in all these different places in different centers, and we don't as a, as a profession approach it with unity I think it has the potential to fracture our profession. And I think that is a problem. Yeah, there was a lot. I mean, it was not clean in the nurse practitioner uh, profession when they went to DNP and 
and, and actually in all the professions that, that eventually went to that. So I agree with you. It does need to be studied. And, and I don't know that there's ever going to be a clean, clean answer for it, but we sort of have to weigh the pros and the cons and, and see what, what's going to be best for, I mean, some people will say, well, what's best for the patient? And that is my driving mantra for almost all the things that we do at our PA school at Shenandoah. But we also have to consider, you know, what's best for our graduates as well. So, uh, because ultimately they'll be serving the patients. Tony, is there anything else that you hope to share with us today that we haven't touched on or we haven't discussed? Sure. Um, I, I, I think that we have an obligation to look to, to the future. And I think we need to look what's happening in the, in the environment uh, in which our programs reside uh, locally, regionally, statewide, and as well as nationally and see what are the trends. Um, and I think that one of the things that I'm concerned about right now probably not the best thing to say on a podcast for students is that, um, you know, there is this potential that um, some things are going to all sort of coalesce. One is the people of my generation, the baby boomers are eventually going to die out. And that blip in terms of population is going to go away. So there's going to be less people with chronic care conditions and so forth that are going to need health care. And if there's a less people in that population needs health care, then we don't need as many providers. Number of PA programs continues to expand. Our applicant pool was sort of flat. And, you know, we don't know what's happening in the job market right now. Right now, PA, PAs are a great thing, and we've survived a lot of things. So I don't want to be totally pessimistic, but I want to say that we do need to watch what's happening in the environment. We just can't, you know, be in our ivory towers of academe and just sort of do our day-to-day thing. We need, we have a responsibility as a profession to monitor what's happening and to respond. Now, to paint an optimistic picture, many, many years ago, there was a report that came out called the Geminac Report says, we're, you know, we have too many doctors or we're going to have too many doctors. And, and, you know, I lived through that time and our applicant pool went way down where we were almost on a one-to-one ratio. Shortly thereafter, a couple things happened that I think were good things. Um, they cut back a little bit on residency programs. And when they cut back on residency programs to respond to that report, because they weren't going to cut back on medical schools, because medical schools drive their tuition, they get reimbursed from the state on a capitation basis and so forth. So what, uh, what happened is the residency programs cut back. Well, who's going to do some of the work that those residents did, you know, the workups, the pre-op physicals and things like that? Oh, what about these PAs that are out in the primary care world? And so we ended up getting, you know, um, saved by that. Medicare reimbursement happened around the same time. And then shortly thereafter that, a couple, you know, several years after that, they cut back on residency hours and filled some of that with PAs. So I think there's going to be potential opportunities for PAs. I'm not sure what those are. Might be some of it be non-clinical roles. But there certainly are opportunities for PAs, but we do need to monitor that. And when I do consultations with PA programs around the area of accreditation, I say, I'm not going to just do deal with you on accreditation issues. I want to talk about quality indicators and how to make your university distinctive. Because if we get into this competition for students uh, down the road as the applicant pool sort of narrows, it's the distinctive schools that are going to survive. It's the ones that have value added and a good reputation. 
and not just the U.S. News and World Report. Uh, you know, Canada is up there in the top 20, the youngest one, by the way. You know, we have to do something that is going to serve our students. You know, the, if you have low intuition, lower tuition, that might help. But if you have a quality program, that will help. Yeah. I, I mean, I think your role as a chief policy and health officer, or I'm sorry, chief policy and research officer for PAEA was quite a good decision in the sense that maybe as a profession, we started to invest in policy and research at that moment in time. And and now, of course, Dave Kaye in that role too. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I think we're in a better position as a profession to be able to articulate our necessity to the healthcare workforce than we were maybe 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, when I was there, one of the proudest things of, you know, I did, there were several proud moments for me that happened and with my team, with my team, not just me. But, you know, we launched a, a, a big research fellowship program. We expanded the uh, data collection uh, to curriculum and many other issues within our annual, you know, our annual reports so that people would have the data they need to make decisions. We introduced the first ever PA education bill into Congress, and I would encourage everybody to take a look at that PA Education Modernization Act. Um, it's a shame it hasn't really moved anywhere, but you know that's Congress. They have other priorities, but there are some good things in there, like getting more federal loan money for our students that they should have gotten a long, long time ago. Yeah. Um, we also launched the Student Health Fellowship uh, Program during my tenure there, too. So I enjoyed that experience, and, and I really feel like we, were, we had an opportunity to be very impactful, and, and those things are still continuing. Well, we want to thank Tony Miller for joining us today. We had a great conversation learning about Shenandoah University, Tony's perspective on the doctoral degree for the BA profession, and some of the challenges our profession may face in the coming year. Tune in next week as we speak to Dr. Michael DeRosa from Samuel Merritt University. Dr. DeRosa is going to provide some insights into his PA program and into his mission work to the remote mountains of Panama. And we'll discuss his unique path to the PA profession from his PhD in neuroscience from UCLA to becoming a primary care focused PA. Until next time, I wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life. And thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Southern California.